Chapter 3 A Brief History of the To-Do List From God to Drew Carey In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was brooding upon the face of the waters. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 In the beginning was the list. Creation, as the Bible tells it, was not a simple job, not even for an omnipotent deity. The project required divine brooding, which did not mean that God was unhappily mulling it over. It meant that the heavens and earth, like an egg, required a period of incubation. The project had to be broken down into a schedule of daily tasks, starting with Monday's to-do list. One, let there be light. Two, observe light. Three, confirm light is good. Four, divide light from darkness. Five, give name to light, day. Six, give name to darkness, night. Thus was writ the weekly calendar. Tuesday for firmament-making chores. Wednesday for creating land and trees, Thursday for stars, Friday for fish and fowl, Saturday for man and women, Sunday for R&R. The tasks were checked off one at a time, then reviewed at the end of the week. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Does that restful weekend sound anything like yours? At first glance, the Genesis strategy seems ridiculously obvious. Set a goal, make a list of the steps to reach it, do them, relax. But how many mortals actually cross off all the items on their weekly list? Our failure rate keeps climbing as the lists keep getting longer. At any one time, a person typically has at least 150 different tasks to be done, and fresh items never stop appearing on our screens. How do we decide what goes on the list and what to do next? The good news is that there are finally some practical answers, but it's hardly been a straightforward process to discover these strategies. Only after decades of research by psychologists and neuroscientists, after centuries of self-help books and millennia of trial and error, can we recognize the essential components of the Genesis to-do list. The first step in self-control is to set a clear goal. The technical term researchers use for self-control is self-regulation, and the regulation part highlights the importance of a goal. Regulating means changing, but only a particular kind of intentional, meaningful changing. To regulate is to guide toward a specific goal or standard, the speed limit for cars on a highway, the maximum height for an office building. Self-control without goals and other standards would be nothing more than aimless change, like trying to diet without any idea of which foods are fattening. For most of us, though, the problem is not a lack of goals, but rather too many of them. We make daily to-do lists that couldn't be accomplished even if there were no interruptions during the day, which there always are. By the time the weekend arrives, there are more unfinished tasks than ever, but we keep deferring them and expecting to get through them with miraculous speed. That's why, as productivity experts have found, an executive's daily to-do list for Monday often contains more work than could be done the entire week. 
we can be even more unrealistic in setting longer-term goals. When that great self-help pioneer Benjamin Franklin wrote his autobiography late in life, he recalled with some amusement the mission he had set for himself in his 20s. I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. Soon enough, he noticed a problem. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habit took the advantage of inattention. Inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. So Franklin tried a divide-and-conquer approach. He drew up a list of virtues and wrote a brief goal for each one, like this one for order. Let all your things have their places. Let each part of your business have its time. There were a dozen more virtues on his list. Temperance, silence, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. But he recognized his limits. I judged it would be well not to distract my attention by attempting the whole at once, Franklin explained, but to fix it on one of them at a time. The result was what he called a course, and what today would be marketed as 13 weeks to total virtue. Long before Stephen Covey's Seven Habits and Leather-Bound Organizers and Planners, long before the daily affirmations recited by the likes of Stuart Smalley, Franklin devised a regimen complete with a table of virtues and an inspirational prayer. Father of light and life, thou good supreme, oh, teach me what is good, teach me thyself, save me from folly, vanity, and vice, from every low pursuit, and fill my soul with knowledge, conscious peace, and virtue pure, sacred, substantial, never-fading bliss. In a paper notebook, Franklin drew lines of red ink to make 13 weekly charts, one for every virtue. Each chart had columns for the days and rows for all the virtues, starting with the virtue of the week. At the end of the day, he would go down the column and put a black pencil mark in a row of any virtue that he'd failed to uphold. In one chart, compiled during a week devoted to temperance, he gave himself black marks for other virtues. Not enough silence and order on Sunday, more disorder and too little industry on Tuesday, a breakdown in resolution and frugality on Friday. But he met his weekly goal by keeping the row for temperance blank every day. Encouraged by that progress, he could then move on to a different virtue the next week, with the hope that the first week had left him with a habitude for temperance that would persist even as he concentrated on different virtues. Franklin compared himself to a gardener removing the weeds from one of 13 flower beds at a time and then repeating the course again, each time finding fewer weeds. So should I have, I hoped, the encouraging pleasure of seeing on my pages the progress I made in virtue by clearing successively my lines of their spots till in the end, by a number of courses, I should be happy in viewing a clean book after a 13 weeks daily examination. It didn't quite work out that way. The marks kept appearing on the pages, 
In fact, as he kept repeating the course, erasing the black pencil marks from the paper to make a fresh start, he eventually wore holes in the paper. So he drew his red ink charts again, in a sturdier notebook with leaves made of ivory, which spread open like a fan. After completing a course, he could wipe off the pencil marks with a wet sponge, and the ivory charts proved remarkably durable. Nearly half a century later, when he was a diplomat flirting with ladies in Paris, he still had the charts and liked to show them off, causing one French friend to marvel at touching this precious booklet. Unlike his self-help successors, including the ones who borrowed his name for the Franklin Cubby 31 Day Planner, Franklin never tried marketing an international line of notebook organizers, perhaps because he was too busy in Paris trying to get help for George Washington's army. Or maybe because his fondness for female company made it difficult for him to promote virtues like chastity. Besides those lapses, Franklin had a terrible time keeping the papers on his desk in order, which meant more black marks. As he put it in Poor Richard's Almanac, "'Tis easy to frame a good, bold resolution, but hard is the task that concerns execution." No matter how hard he tried, Franklin never could have kept that notebook clean, because some of the goals were bound to conflict at times. When, as a young journeyman printer, he tried to practice order by drawing up a rigid daily work schedule, he kept getting interrupted by unexpected demands from his clients. And industry required him to ignore the schedule and meet with them. If he practiced frugality, waste nothing, by always mending his own clothes and preparing all his own meals, there'd be less time available for industry at his job, or for side projects like flying a kite in a thunderstorm or editing the Declaration of Independence. If he promised to spend an evening with his friends, but then fell behind his schedule for work, he'd have to make a choice that would violate his virtue of resolution. Perform without fail what you resolve. Still, Franklin's goals seem fairly consistent by comparison with modern ones. He focused on the old Puritan virtues of hard work and didn't aim for much fun, at least not on paper. He didn't resolve to enjoy long walks on the beach, volunteer with a nonprofit group, promote recycling in his community, and spend more quality time playing with his children. He didn't have a bucket list of tourist destinations or dreams of retiring to Florida. He didn't resolve to learn golf while negotiating the Treaty of Paris. Today, there are more temptations, including the temptation to want them all at once. When asked by researchers to list their personal goals, most people have no trouble coming up with at least 15 separate ones. Some can dovetail well and support each other, like a goal to quit smoking and a goal to spend less money, but there are inevitably conflicts between work and family goals. Even within a family, the demands of taking care of children may clash with those of maintaining a good relationship with one's spouse, which may help explain why marital satisfaction declines when a couple gives birth to their first child and goes back up when the last child finally moves out. Some goals bring conflict all by themselves, like Franklin's virtue of moderation. Forbear resenting injuries so much as you think they deserve. Many people have the goal of holding their temper if they are wronged. When something unfair happens to them, they manage to restrain themselves from saying or doing anything, but then afterward they may feel bad because they failed to make their point or stand up for themselves, 
or because the original problem remains unresolved. By practicing moderation, they violate another of Franklin's virtues, justice. The result of conflicting goals is unhappiness instead of action, as the psychologists Robert Emmons and Laura King demonstrated in a series of studies. They had people list their 15 main goals and mark which ones conflicted with which others. In one study, the subjects kept daily logs of their emotions and physical symptoms for three weeks, and they gave researchers access to their health records for the previous year. In another study, they wore beepers that went off at random points during the day, prompting them to answer questions about what they were doing and feeling. They also returned to the lab a year later to furnish additional information on what they had accomplished and how their health had fared. By asking people about their goals and then monitoring them, the researchers identified three main consequences of conflicting goals. First, you worry a lot. The more competing demands you face, the more time you spend contemplating these demands. You're beset by rumination, repetitive thoughts that are largely involuntary and not especially pleasant. Second, you get less done. It might seem that people who think more about their goals would also take more steps to reach them, but instead they replace action with rumination. The researchers found that people with clear, unconflicting goals tended to forge ahead and make progress, but the rest were so busy worrying that they got stuck. Third, your health suffers physically as well as mentally. In the studies, people with conflicting goals reported fewer positive emotions, more negative emotions, and more depression and anxiety. They had more psychosomatic complaints and symptoms. Even just plain physical sickness, measured both by the number of visits to the doctor and by the number of self-reported illnesses over the course of a year, was higher among the people with conflicting goals. The more the goals conflicted, the more the people got stuck and the more unhappy and unhealthy they became. They paid the price for too much brooding, in the most common modern use of the word, not the one in Genesis. The old term for incubation would eventually come to be associated with mental distress, no doubt because so many people could see the same problems later measured by psychologists. A hen might brood contentedly, but humans suffer when their conflicting goals leave them sitting around doing nothing. And they can't resolve those conflicts until they decide which kinds of goals will do them the most good. Which goals? Joe is having a cup of coffee in a restaurant. He's thinking of the time to come when... Suppose, as a storytelling exercise, you finish that story about Joe any way you like. Quickly imagine what might be going through Joe's mind. Now try a similar exercise. Finish a story that begins with these words. After awakening, Bill began to think about his future. In general, he expected to... Once again, you have complete freedom. Complete the story about Bill and don't worry about polishing your mental prose. Rough ideas are fine. Finished? Now consider the actions described in your story. In each story, over how long a period do those actions take place? This is not, of course, a literary test for aspiring novelists. 
is an experiment that was previously conducted by psychiatrists among heroin addicts at a treatment center in Burlington, Vermont. The researchers also gave the exercises to a control group of adults who are demographically similar to the addicts, no college degree, annual income of less than $20,000, etc. When Joe sat in the coffee shop thinking of the time to come, that time typically covered about a week in the stories from the control group. But in the heroin addict stories, it covered only an hour. When the control group wrote about the future for Bill, they tended to mention long-term aspirations, like earning a promotion at work or getting married. While the addicts wrote about upcoming events, like a doctor's appointment or a visit with relatives. The typical person in the control group contemplated the future over four and a half years, while the typical addict's vision of the future extended only nine days. This shortened temporal horizon has been demonstrated over and over in addicts of all kinds. When drug addicts play games of cards in the laboratory, they prefer risky strategies with quick, big payoffs, even if they could make more money in the long run by settling for a series of smaller payoffs. Given a choice between getting $375 today or $1,000 a year from now, the addicts are more likely to take the quick money, and so are alcoholics and smokers. The psychiatrist Warren Bickle, who tested those addicts in Vermont and has continued research at the University of Arkansas, says that in studies of heavy users of tobacco, alcohol, and other drugs, a preference for short-term payoffs has been observed again and again. The only exception was, once again, marijuana. Being far less addictive than other substances, it seems not to require the destructive short-term mindset that goes with addiction. A short-term perspective can make you more likely to become addicted, and then the addiction can further shrink your horizons as you focus on quick rewards. If you can manage to eliminate or moderate your addiction, your future horizon is liable to expand, as Bickle and his colleagues have found in experiments with smokers and opioid users. In the lab, as in life, the alcoholics and addicts and smokers are exemplars of the hazards of short-term goals. Ignoring the long-term is hazardous to your health, both physically and fiscally. In another experiment with those stories about Joe and Bill, researchers found that people with high incomes tended to look further into the future than people with low incomes. That difference is partly due to necessity. If you're scrambling to pay the rent, you don't have the luxury of comparing 401k retirement plans. Yet being unable to pay the rent can also be a consequence of short-term thinking. As in Aesop's fable, the far-sighted ant is better prepared for the winter than the live-for-the-moment grasshopper. Still, Aesop isn't the last word on setting goals. For decades, psychologists have been debating the merits of proximal goals, which are short-term objectives, versus distal goals, which are long-term objectives. One of the classic experiments was conducted by Albert Bandura, a legendary figure in the field one survey of citations ranked him in fourth place behind Freud, Skinner, and Piaget. He and Dale Schunk studied children between the ages of 7 and 10 who were having difficulty with math. The children took a course featuring self-directed learning with many arithmetic exercises. Some of the students were told to set themselves proximal goals of trying to do at least six pages worth of problems in each session. 
Others were told to set only one distal goal of completing 42 pages by the end of seven sessions. The pace was thus the same for both goals. A third group did not set goals, and a fourth group did not even do the exercises. The group with the proximal goals outperformed everyone else when the program was over and competence was tested. They succeeded, apparently, because meeting these daily goals gradually built their confidence and self-efficacy. With their focus on a specific goal for each session, they learned better and faster than the others. Even though they spent less time per session, they got more done, thus progressing through all the material faster. At the end, when faced with hard problems, they persevered longer and were less likely to give up. It turned out that the distal goals were no better than having no goals at all. Only the proximal goals produced improvements in learning, self-efficacy, and performance. But soon after that study was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, the most prestigious and rigorous journal for those fields, the same journal published a paper by Dutch researchers demonstrating the virtues of distal goals, at least for the high school boys being studied. The boys who cared more about long-term objectives, finding an interesting career, making plenty of money, having a good family life, achieving high social status, tended to do better in school. Those who were relatively indifferent to such distal goals tended to be worse students. Focusing on far-off goals seemed to be more effective than focusing on intermediate goals, like getting good grades, going on holidays, or earning a diploma. Those distal goals also seemed to be more useful than present-oriented goals, like aiming to help others or acquire knowledge. Why did the long-term objectives work with these high school students, but not in the earlier study with the arithmetic lessons? One reason is that the high school students could clearly see a connection between the daily tasks and their long-term goals. The superior students not only emphasized distal goals, but were also more likely than the lesser students to see their current studies and work as vital steps leading toward these goals. Another reason is that older children are better able than younger ones to think about the future. Regardless of whether those boys ever reached their distal goals, they moved forward by seeing the connection between their distant dreams and the drudgery of daily life. And they presumably reaped the same kind of reward that Ben Franklin did. Late in life, he cheerfully acknowledged that he had failed to ever reach his proximal goal of a clean weekly notebook, much less his distal goal of moral perfection. But the link between the two goals had inspired him along the way, and he took solace from the results. On the whole, Franklin concluded, Though I never arrived at the perfection I had been so ambitious of obtaining, but fell far short of it, yet I was, by the endeavor, a better and a happier man than I otherwise should have been if I had not attempted it. <laughs>